Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to this Textile Talk podcast. I'm Gail Cowley and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Graham Stewart, who's an international textile and apparel production fibre specialist. Just to give you a little bit of background on Graham before we begin. For the past two years, Graham has developed and patented a more sustainable process to bleach and dye cotton called Fiber 52. Fiber 52 is an environmentally kind and cost conscious process for cotton dyeing. It's a simple, inexpensive replacement for traditional and outdated cotton preparation methods. It uses natural products instead of heavy chemicals, working at a lower temperature with less energy, less water and a shorter processing time. This makes it a wonderfully cost-effective, eco-conscious and sustainable bleach and dye process. All this means that consumers will soon be offered a more natural and ecologically sound choice of fabric. With Fibre 52, the natural cotton is stronger, recyclable and biodegradable, making it a natural replacement for plastic. A really warm welcome to uh, this episode of Textile Talk podcast, and I'm delighted to to have you here. Not least, actually, because so many of our followers and students are becoming increasingly concerned about the effect that some of their dyeing and printing is actually having, and it will be really interesting to hear your take on which direction that's going in. So I'm, I'm sure they will be fascinated. Well, thank you again. Thanks for inviting me on the pod. Uh, I was I was expecting an American accent, so you thrown me slightly. Yeah, I'm from Huddersfield. <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> <laughs> so my American accent's not that great, I've got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, but, but obviously you are at the moment in America. Yeah, I've been here 10 years this time around, yeah, so. Interesting that um, City and Guilds is still going strong. Oh, yes. You've obviously heard of it. Well, I have full technological certificate, City and Guilds, in um, textiles and dyeing. But, uh, ah, right. That got me into the Society of Dyes and Colourists, and I did my degree in Bradford, at Bradford University part-time. Right. Yeah. right. What about yourself? Where, where, where did you study? I actually studied, well, initially I did my City and Gills with um, Opus in London. Oh, yeah. And then I went on to do a, um, a BTEC and then eventually a degree in design and textiles. Oh, wonderful. Um, and then later on to do a, a master's and a PhD in education. Nice. So wow. <laughs> I, d- wow. I don't think I've, I've ever got out of the education bug. No, I mean, that's a great thing. I mean, uh, I, I'm very much involved with education here with uh, NC State University. Um, funnily enough, one of the professors is um, a guy who studied at Huddersfield Polytechnic when I did um, in 1979, would you believe? Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Do- do- Andrew, or Professor Andrew West, a great guy. And uh, 
we do a lot of um, we do a lot of work. In fact, there's a lady, young lady, doing her thesis right now on Fiber Fifty Two, which um, we may discuss in this uh, in this podcast. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm up there just about every week. Fantastic, thirty five thousand people there. Would you believe? My goodness, that yeah. is a lot. It's a lot. It really is. You should try parking there. Anyway. <laughs> I wonder if I could ask you to just um, start off by telling us a little about what an international textile and apparel production fibre specialist does, because I know that is your title. That's quite a long one. Yeah. Um, so I'd just like to know a little bit more about your role, if possible. I'm not sure where that title comes from. <laughs> it does sound pretty grand. It but, does, doesn't uh, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. None of that was ever planned, I can tell you now. But um, yeah, the, the reason I guess I get that such a, a grand handle is that um, I've been in the textile industry ever since I was, uh, you know, started as a dyer at 15 years old in Huddersfield. We're the largest commission dyers in Europe. Uh, we had uh, 10 dye houses. And uh, Huddersfield was the largest producer of dye stuffs in the world in those days. The ICI was at the back of my house, 300 yards away. Everybody in my street worked there. 6,000 people. They invented many different dye stuffs, uh, but particularly reactive dyes, which are so mm -hmm. prominent in the world. Uh, just about everything you wear is reactive dyed. And, you know, again, maybe we'll talk about yeah, you know, sometimes the bad press that dies like that get, which some of it is uncalled for, some of it not. But um, certainly, I, I I left I left England uh, probably um, I don't know twenty five years ago. I was um, I was working in the wool industry. Uh, went um, well, sorry, I should go back to England. I worked for Dawson International. I was director of Dawson International in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. We're the largest cashmere company in the world. And then, we, uh, my fault, we branched into um, America back in the 80s. We had 4,500 people in Pennsylvania making making cotton thermals. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then we, we that was a company called J.E. Morgan. Then we bought Duofold, which was in every mom and pop store in America, every ski store, you name it, fantastic brand, still going. Then I joined the wool industry. Uh, went to Italy, lived in Italy for a few years. Then I was called to go to head office in Adelaide, Australia. Uh, lived there on and off for 10 years. Uh, spent five years in China, worked for the, um, uh, and Hong Kong. I worked for the largest knitwear company in the world, uh, Novel Industries uh, in Hong Kong. We own Tommy Hilfiger and all sorts of other things. The largest one spinner in the world. So, that, you know, I guess I cut my teeth on, on some, you know, with some, fairly large players there my and goodness then, you did didn't you yes and, yeah. and what an amazing um journey not just uh, from a professional point of view but just from a, a geographical point of view you've just been to so many countries well yeah I, I i mean again you know the textile world moves but i also that that's only halfway through i'm sorry to say <laughs> 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 i then uh, i then joined shanghai challenge textiles we had three and a half thousand people downtown shanghai made 30 million garments a year totally vertical and then i moved to bozeman montana um partnered with a rancher uh, the biggest or the largest i should say uh fine wool grower in america I had to you know forge the whole supply chain 
which I think will be very interesting to anybody who's involved in craft because we went from actually shearing the sheep, which was a big deal, you know, that took a week to shear all those sheep, mm. uh, measuring, measuring the wool objectively, which hadn't been done in America, and then, you know, spinning, knitting, weaving, dyeing, finishing, cut and sewed the garments, did the whole deal. And that's what got me to Fibre 52 because I was, you know, uh, as a dyer, the, the dye houses here just let me do what I wanted, to be honest. Providing I paid them, they'd say, you go and do it because there's very little, uh, there was no wool dyeing in, in, certainly in circular knits, just didn't exist and knits didn't exist. Now they do and also got very much involved with the, uh, with the US forces in, in making base layers and outerwear for for them as well in, mm. in wool which is a fantastic fiber but then i, I kind of pivoted into cotton uh, i've processed a lot of cotton in my life and uh, very much very deep into it we have inquiry from all over the globe right now for fiber 52 for a you know a more sustainable way to process cotton it's been done the same way for i don't know 80 years and it's strange that it was not you know has never been looked upon to be done in a more sustainable manner and that's that's what we're doing and uh, and it's it's moving quickly so hopefully that brings you up to date without taking too long i apologize but you know i, I sound like no, I'm 107 years old but <laughs> it's fascinating and i won't be rude enough to ask what your exact age is <laughs> <laughs> thanks I won't tell you that. mainly because i don't want you to ask me the question back <laughs> so i mean Obviously, that's a fabulous introduction to you personally, and you've worked with so many different fibres, because I sort of had the thought that I was coming on to talk to you about cotton, but now I'm really tempted to sidetrack onto, onto wool as well. Yeah, wool's, wool's been a big part of my life, and so has cashmere, just as much as wool in it. Um, I spend a lot of time, even have my own brand with cashmere. Uh, it's a beautiful fiber. Wool's the best, though. It's so complex in comparison mm. to any other fiber. It's massively complex um, or complicated, I should say, in that we don't really understand how wool works and you know how you how you should deal with it. It, it always has some surprises, you know. Um, mm. Cotton, in a, in a way, is a much simpler fiber uh, to deal with. That, because they're both such natural fibres, aren't they? So I suppose we tend to almost class them um, in a similar way, really. Yeah, I mean, they're quite opposite in that you've got wool as a protein-based fibre, whereas mm -hmm. cotton's obviously cellulose. And so the dye stuffs are mainly different. And even, But I have to say, even this past year or so, um, we've been dying all over the world, and particularly... Of late, we've been doing a lot in Italy, um, only due to the fact that I have a lot of contacts and friends in the textile industry in Italy, and it's moved very, very quickly there. And mm -hmm. we've found that um, we can dye using a, a direct dyes. I'm not sure whether you're fair with direct dyes. Um, I am, yes, um, to an extent, but only in a very small production capacity. Um, you know, in that I would be advising a student to use them, or but not not obviously to the extent that you will be using them. Yeah, we use reactives and we use directs, but directs are cheaper. Mm. Um, they don't have the fastness properties that reactives have. Yet we're finding 
quite the opposite in that um, because the way that we treat cotton, I can't tell you how this process works in any big detail because we don't have an NDA and um, our company lawyers are really good, nice people, mm -hmm. but you know, we, we have to be careful because this process is transferable anywhere in the world into all existing machinery. Uh, that's the good side. The downside is it's transferable all over the world in any existing machinery. So that, that's, that's your big problem. And so I have to be careful what I say. Um, but the way we do it has, you know, caused some very nice surprises, I have to say, in that uh, we dye at much 58 degrees lower than normal with direct dyes. We, you know, shave about two hours off the whole process. We use up, up to 70% less water, 70% up to 70% less energy. And, I, you know, I've got to qualify this. It depends on the age of your machinery and so mm -hmm. on. But, uh, and, and depends where you are in the world. But um, certainly uh, we're finding uh, these are good surprises. You know, surprises yeah. aren't always good. But these are in that we're, we're getting tremendous fastnesses. You know, where I mean, last week I was in a dye house in South Carolina and um, we, uh, you know, the dyer said, "Well, you, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, <laughs> you can have problems the way that you do it. Put it that way." Um, mm. He said, "You know, the fastnesses will be very poor." But to his surprise, one, the shade came up exactly. We could hardly, we could hardly see any difference on a spectrophotometer to their normal, um, you know, traditional dyeing. Mm. Um, but we don't use the heavy chemicals and so on that the that are normally used in cotton. We use bioproducts. Um, really? Yeah, it's all bioproduct. And mm. uh, that's the shock to dyers. And, you know, they said, well, you, your fastnesses are going to be terrible. But um, the, the toughest fastness is really the the wet rubbing fastness. And we got five out of five for that, which mm -hmm. even surprised me, I have to say. It varies a little bit. But we're usually getting four to five. So anyway, that's, that's the cotton industry. So if you want to talk about something else, Gail, please do. You know, I mean... No, I'm, I'm just, I'm actually fascinated to hear that um, it will be transferable to any machinery that's out there. What are your eventual plans for it, Graham? Do you plan to patent, obviously, the, the process and then sell the process into places? Or how does that work? That's that's very smart. You're one of the few people that's got that. We actually are going to do that. We've we've we have three patents pending, and all all in late stage now. And I can explain a little bit what that means. But um, yeah, the patents uh, we, we're we're patenting worldwide, which is super expensive. Let me tell you. Oh, I can um, imagine. Uh, but we, you know, we feel confident enough that we've got something here. But we're already rolling out commercially now, and uh, we, we charge a, a small royalty for this mm -hmm. process. Um, I'm sorry we can't do it for individuals, but you know, we um, we either do it with brands and we've got the largest brands in the world working with us right now, um, but we work with their manufacturers and we either charge the brand a royalty or the manufacturer royalty and in some cases both, um, mm. depending, on the, depending on the agreements um, that we make. I see. And where do you where do you see it eventually ending up do you think that looking at it from um sort of a, a a small crafter's point of view do you think we will ever see that dye or that dye process for sale in a small batch way yes i do uh, and i i want to do that 
uh, or we want to do that, I should say, um, me and my colleagues, um, I see this process being, I don't know, maybe 80% of the world's cotton processing sometime. It probably won't be in the next year or two, but, you know, people can't continue to use heavy chemicals, heavy alkali. In some countries already, um, and I won't mention the countries, but they're in South America right now, um, really, they haven't banned using these heavy chemicals, but they're already on a watch list. The government are saying, you've got to get these out of your system within the next year or so. Mm. So it's interesting that that's happening. Um, so, you know, the more enlightened processes around the world are already starting to do that. Legislation's coming in. Let's face it, you know, what's happening with the United Nations for 2030 and so on with, um, you know, the sustainability goals, this kind of process just has to be used. Um, yeah. And it's so easy. Yeah, it's, much, it's even easier than the standard processing. Uh, and so why not? I mean, look, I'm, I'm an avid uh, craft dyer myself and you know I love to use natural dyes and so on and uh, me and my daughter do quite a bit of dyeing actually you know in a bucket mm. <laughs> or in the sink. <laughs> I think that's you know. called taking your work home with you isn't it? <laughs> it? It is yeah it really is I mean you know you, you, once you're in this industry it's hard to get away from it and I, I just enjoy to use natural dyes as well not that they're as sustainable as people sometimes make out, um, but they're 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 okay, uh, and I, I and that's what I do. I play with not using, you know, the 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 um, the metals that are sometimes used in natural yeah. dye. Because the more it's the mordant, isn't it? Usually yeah, that causes the issue. That's right, and with with the with the these bioproducts, you can you can actually get rid of the mordants which is causing the issue um, and use bioproduct instead of modern and that's in one of my patents actually so i mean i, I know sometimes uh, traditionally things like lead were used for mordants as well weren't they uh, yeah cro chrome was the big one in the past uh -huh. so we used chrome dyes and then they became pre-metalized um there's, there's still are metals in them with the, mm -hmm. you know with the name pre-metalized um they're still being used but less and less and you know that that to your questions that's the direction of the industry you, you know it just has to be more sustainable i know we use that word far too often but that's the way i, I just don't know how, what what else to say that's the way the industry is going and that's the way you, you know we all will go i guess um you know even those of us who are craft fabric and yarn dyers uh, or loose stock dyers you know loose fiber mm. whatever we're gonna we're gonna you know change our ways i think and it's tremendously interesting yes it's certainly something that people are, are very much aware of and i think as well actually the younger people are perhaps the more aware they are um, maybe they hear more about it in school perhaps they're taught more about it but it is something that they seem to be much more aware of than perhaps older people are oh definitely yeah um un undoubtedly uh, i think you know where, where i grew up in huddersfield we would we would bet on what colour the river was going to run that day. You know, it was uh, red, yeah. blue, green. It's, it's terrible. And and you know, I look back in shame as to what we did do. You've moved the process on tremendously, but do you think that there's still scope there for moving it further in the future? Yeah, I mean, our our company policy is very very much to put anything that we earn out of Fiber Fifty Two, we're going to reinvest. Mm -hmm. um, because we also, you know, we've talked about cashmere, we've talked about wool and so on. We're going to, uh, at some point, roll 
these kind of processes into those fibers also. Um, so we, we're not looking to make a profit anytime soon. We, you mm -hmm. know, our, our whole theory is let's let's do this better. Um, yeah, and one day we might, <laughs> one day we might turn a profit, but it's not a priority right now. You know, and it's good to have partners that think in that manner. You know, our priority is to do things right, and 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 also to use that, as I say, to use anything that we do gain out of selling this process or licensing this process. We'll get into other fibers as well, and maybe other textiles. We're also already in trials with non-wovens, for instance, which is a huge category, as you as you know. Mm. Um, and we're, you know, in cotton, there are two, in, in this case, there are two distinct parts to processing. There's the prepare for dye bleach, and then there's dyeing. In cotton, you have to, and I'm sure your listeners know this, you'd really do have to use a bleaching process. And that's where all the damage is done uh, because of the heavy alkali with hydrogen peroxide. And I mean, we all use hydrogen peroxide, right? I mean, I, I use it to clean my teeth, but you know, so hydrogen peroxide is fine. What you put with it, there's a problem. And um, we also are able to go straight from that bleaching process into dyeing without dropping the dye bath, which saves 10,000 liters per thousand kilograms of fiber. You know, so this kind of thing really is a big deal in the cotton industry. Because as you know, cotton's a big, big fiber. It's what, uh, it's the second, it's the second largest fiber type in the world after polyester and it's mm. natural which polyester obviously isn't where do you source the cotton from i mean where which countries does it come from um well um right now here in the carolinas obviously i live amongst the cotton fields um, i'm in south carolina mm -hmm. um, i drive to north carolina every week and i drive through hundreds of miles of cotton fields um, also my partners are based in houston texas which is the largest cotton growing area in in, uh, in North America. About 50% of America's cotton comes out of Texas. But uh, when I'm on the West Coast, which I, uh, you know, I go to the West Coast every three, four weeks, uh, where there's a large textile industry in, um, in dyeing and cut and sew for garments. There, most of the cotton I'm using comes out of India. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. The, the cotton I'm processing is mainly coming from the US or India or both. How, how much difference does the original cotton, the quality of it, have on the dye process? A tremendous difference. Um, and that's possibly, again, where we're putting a focus on this is that dyes just don't really care what's on the fibre. Um, basically, mm -hmm. you just have to clean it up and get going. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. let's, yeah. let's get dying, let's get going. And so we, what we do is we actually, um, we extract the um, whatever's on the fiber and anal uh, we do an analysis. We're, one, we analyze quantitatively how much there is on the fiber and qualitatively what it is that's on the fiber and so we're engaging much more now with the um with the growers as well where we can in the world um that's a big deal for us we we, we really want to get into that because it does affect the process in a big way and it, it affects it affects the quality of the final product which we want to focus upon to have the best final product that you can actually get I seem to recall hearing in perhaps perhaps in years past that there have been problems with cotton. You know, there's been a crop failure. Are there, are there stocks of cotton still pretty plentiful? 
Um, yeah, still, still, it's it's tough. You know, the the, the cotton industry's not got as much cotton worldwide or uh, free cotton. Let's put it that way, because there's been issues in China that we all know about. Mm. There was issues in India with organic cotton. You know, and and the pandemic's not helped that. And mm. there is a there is a slow recovery, but um, yeah, uh, we'll get, getting back to normal, but not quite there yet. So usually when there's a scarcity, there's an increase in price. Yes. Um, and, I, and I presume that we would expect, therefore, to see cotton going up over the next few years. Yeah, it went up, um, started to go up about two years ago, but, but there have been tremendous increases in price in cotton. Yeah, mm. and it's still up there. So it's obviously increasingly important to make the most of what's out there. And, and perhaps in the way that we think of I don't know, cashmere or silk as being a luxury um, fabric. Maybe we'll be taking the same view over cotton. We already are. I mean, we're mm -hmm. dealing with one of the world's largest luxury groups um, right now. Um, and th sorry, that cotton, Indian cotton spun in Japan. Yeah, talk about a global industry. Yeah. Indian cotton spun in Japan, um, uh, knitted in Italy and woven in Italy. Tremendous, by the way, just the most gorgeous fibre you can imagine and that's looking at cotton in a different way um, it's looking at cotton as a luxury fibre not just a mass market um, and you know the product that comes out in the end is fabulous but I think to your point what's really important is that even the dyers that we deal with have to learn how to cost right mm -hmm. it's not your first cost it's not the cost of the products that are going into it, like the chemicals we always get, oh, look, this chemical costs so much. What does your bioproduct cost? We're not far off. We're more or less the same. But when you look at saving up to 70% of water, up to 50%, let's say, of, of energy, your carbon footprint's 50, up to 50% less, and the time involved as well is up mm -hmm. to 50% less. Once you cost that in, there's a, a great big difference. Yeah, the, you know this more sustainable way of dyeing and processing is way cheaper than normal. Well, I think we're we're all aware, aren't we? Just how much the cost of energy has gone up. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the dyer that we work with mainly in Italy, um, their costs have increased ten times, tenfold in the last two years. Can you believe that? That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. And I, yeah. I presume, I mean, as you're saying, this is very, it's a very global process. Is that absolutely necessary? Is there a reason why some of these processes can't be done where the cotton is grown? Um, yeah, cotton being an agricultural product isn't grown in the cities or, you know, like Los Angeles, some of the biggest dye houses in the world are there, right downtown. You know, I, I, I can put my finger on 300,000 pounds processing a day downtown LA. There's not much cotton being grown in LA, I can tell you. <laughs> Amongst the 18 million inhabitants. <laughs> that's, that, that's probably, maybe explains it somewhere. But yeah, um, you know, and then cotton in India is grown in the rural areas. I just sort of wondering why um, it needs to go from being grown in India to then going to Japan to then going to Italy. It seems as though there's there's going to be quite a, a consideration in um, travel cost for it as it moves well, from that, place that, to that's place. That's right. And that, that's, 
you know, that's why that particular supply chain probably won't exist much. You know, maybe mm -hmm. one of the big guys wants to use it. But even then, as you say, you know, I, the publicity is not great when you're shipping it 10,000 miles. Um, mm. You know, but, but there again, back to your question, you know, look at Texas. It's a state, I think, bigger than Britain. And, you know, it's very rural. Um, so you've got to ship it and there's no spinning. There's, mm -hmm. there's no real textile industry in in, uh, in Texas. So you've got to ship it somewhere. And it usually comes to either goes to the west coast um, of, of America um, to the producers there or to the Carolinas or a bit to the uh, to the west of us to, um, you know, to Alabama and Georgia or it ships somewhere, you know. So, yeah, unfortunately, right now, we don't have any alternative, but cotton gets shipped around the world. And that's just a fact of life. And I don't think that's going to change a great deal, to be honest. I, I think it's quite hard to change things like that, isn't it, anyway? Yes, it is, yeah. Very Once plants hard. have been set up and and um, obviously I presume that you need an expert, a level of expertise from workers in that area as well. Yeah, you, I mean, cotton's not the easiest fibre to grow. You do need knowledge, a lot of knowledge, to grow the fibre itself. It's this, the same with wool. If you want really good wool, you better know what you're doing right from the shearing because um, mm. it makes a, an enormous difference as to how the finished product is. And mm. uh, it's the same with cotton. It's, it, it's actually even, even the same with synthetic fibres to an extent, but not the same, mm. not as much as with these natural fibres. We've talked about the price of cotton going up, but actually the price of wool is going down, isn't it? No. Um, no? Fi fine wool's going up um pretty strongly at the moment so mm. i haven't looked at this week's report i i being a wool guy i look at i get every report you can imagine on wool <laughs> pricing there's two there's two sides to wool there's the wool that goes into our apparel and then there's the wool that goes into carpets and other things so mm. furnishings um so if you look at the broader wools that are not used in apparel are not much used in apparel, they're often used in outerwear, but mainly they're used in furnishings and carpets and so on. The price of those walls has been pretty low for the last 10, 15 years. In apparel walls, fine walls out of Australia and, uh, and New Zealand, South Africa, they're on the rise and will mm -hmm. continue to do so, I believe. I mean, I, I, I've, I've often been wrong, by the way, um, <laughs> as being a wall trader. <laughs> We, you, you get it wrong all the time. You just hope you don't get it wrong too often. Um, obviously, we're not, not too far here from the Lake District, and Cumbria is, is famous for wool. Yep. Um, and I hear a lot of farmers complaining about how low the price that they're getting for a fleece now is. Yeah, that, that's because England, as we all know, Gail, <laughs> it rains a lot and we have, beautiful, <laughs> we, we have beautiful grass. That means broader wool. So mm. in Australia, where it's dry, where I lived in Adelaide and, uh, and, and over in Sydney, to the north of Sydney, the, the, the fine wools are there, are grown in mainly low rainfall areas. Um, mm. You know, Adelaide would have maybe 10 inches a year of rain, whereas Huddersfield gets about 45 a year. The, and the Lake District more. The Lake District, I can't imagine how much rain there is, but that means broader wool, and there's the price problem because, I mean, it's beautiful wool, by the way. The wool that's mm. grown in Britain is, is fabulous, but it's broader in general. And, and how, would that, how would that translate into a finished item? 
those, those broader walls are used and as, as when I was younger we had a big carpet industry in the UK mm -hmm. um, if you remember Kidderminster the Kidderminster carpet Axminster Wilton you know the yeah. most famous carpets in the world were made in Britain those were made from the broader walls British broader walls that's how that industry started also in Wales, we, we were dyeing all the yarns for the tapestry industry in Wales, which existed in those days. Um, really? Yeah, and that, that was, again, broader walls, beautiful tapestries uh, and coats. You know, the, the, the coats that were made from those tapestry uh, woven fabrics were, were just mm. amazing. And that's, a, you know, a, a lot of that industry has died. I do know that there is still carpet manufacturing in, in the UK. And in fact, we're working with a dyer in Great Britain, um, quite a large dyer who's a yarn dyer. And, um, mm. you know, they're thriving with cotton, but they also dye quite a lot of wool also, which is mainly grown in, grown in the UK. Yes, because yarn crafts have become much more popular recently. Yeah, and I think those British walls are beautiful. I mean, my daughter's in the next room. Um, <laughs> she's... she's uh, crocheting as we as we speak oh, really? um, yeah and using um you know she's using wool from um yeah from england and you know she she does a, a lot over a period of time and um those wools are just fabulous for hand knitting which you know again is is an industry i think that's increasing i, I when when i was uh, when i was in australia i used to sell what we call 28.8 micron wool to mm -hmm. China, we would sell whew, uh, 20 million kilos a year into China just for hand knitting. I'm oh, not sure. sure that industry exists anymore, but it used to be enormous. Mm. Yeah, I certainly think that uh, the quality that I've seen for sale for hand knitting yarn and crochet yarn has increased substantially recently. Yeah, I, I see it here too. Um, we, you know, we go and buy wool from um our local stores and it's hard to get uh, to be honest mm -hmm. the ones that we want to do that you know you can buy you can buy a few bobbins but when you go back to try and buy it it's gone you know that you can't buy the same color again yeah um, that that's the demand that's happening these are big stores too i you know i go to walmart would you believe you, you know it's just enormous stores here um you know we buy at walmart or we go to the um there's a big craft store called Michael's, which tends to be in the bigger towns and cities in the US. Very beautiful yarns. They have a big section selling yarns and selling fabrics and so on. And yarns are hard to come by, especially, you know, in wool. They're harder. The cotton and blends you can get, but in wool, it's tough. Yeah, we, we seem to have a lot of small producers uh, nearby, perhaps because of the amount of sheep that we have in this area. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you can get some lovely small batch dyed yarns, um, but I don't think they're not out, they're not being mass produced, they're just small producers. Yeah, and I, I think I see a massive demand for that kind of product here in the US. And, uh, you know, that that is, this market would have amazing potential for those smaller guys in the in in the uk i just don't see any of it yes yeah which is a shame yeah mm. it is it's a big shame because the market's pretty much untapped and mm. um you know there's there's just that pent-up demand um for that kind of um 
wool yarn or even rovings, you know, um, wool tops as we call them. Uh, again, huge demand for that kind of thing here. Um, but for, not, for felt and... and uh, yeah. Yeah. All, all those things because, you see, in America, the wool industry is actually a sheep industry. So it's more of a meat industry. So, you know, I think Britain actually has quite a, an advantage in the, the, you know, the quality of those broader wools um, is, is exceptional. So as far as just obviously cycling back to um, Fibre 52, do you imagine that there will be any production for small crafters in the respective fabrics that they could use for craft or do you see that it, it being used in that way i do um it's pretty much as we were just discussing with you know the craft people in wool in the in the uk there's no reason why i mean here in the us i already see that there's a big craft business um i think you, you know i i use I shouldn't do, but I, I use those dyes that you can buy in Walmart and so on uh, at, the, at the weekend. And again, the shortage is incredible. It's really hard to find them um, because more and more people are buying those packaged dye stuffs um, and using them at home and, 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 and processing fabrics and, and, and yarns and fibers at home. So I, I do see... I, I see enormous growth in this industry, in this craft industry, mm. uh, which is great. Obviously, um, I know that the States is, has a real tradition in quilting and quilting fabrics. Yes. And that's obviously something that our listeners would be interested in. And I'm sure that they would also want, if they possibly could, to purchase those fabrics that they're going to use to make, for example, a quilt. If they knew that they were produced in an e ecologically friendly way, I'm sure that they would wish to purchase. Do you have any advice for them as to how they could make sure that what they're purchasing for their craft projects is kind to the environment? Yeah, maybe at a craft level, it's easy to do. If I can, you know, just relate to apparel, the apparel industry in general. You know, mm -hmm. you've got the big guys, uh, and I think they're the same retailers in apparel in England as they are in the US. And I always look on the labels to find out where the product is from. I mean, yeah, you'll get labels that say it's recycled and all this mm -hmm. stuff. You don't really know that. Right, you you don't have any detail, no. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, and 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 you know retailers are under pressure to bring more of that information to consumers. I think in the craft industry it might be a bit easier, and I find this it's a bit easier to find out where your product is coming from, and what you know what processes it's been through, and in fact you're processing it yourself anyway. But it's it's a little bit easier, but not not. It's not as um, I don't I don't know what to say transparent as it should be. You know, we mm -hmm. we, we all have to spend more time and more money in yeah. in, in actually um, telling everybody where your product is, where your fibre has come from, mm -hmm. what supply chain that's been through, and very importantly, what is on that fibre. Right? How has that been processed? Because that's what we need to find out. And again, that information is not so readily available, unfortunately. And that's what we've got to work on. That's part of the spend that we will have. We we are gonna we're happy to spend as much as it takes, 
you know, without turning a profit, we're, we're happy to spend as much as it takes to make that supply chain visible. Yes, I, I mean, I, I suppose a couple of things that come to mind. Often when you're buying some fabric to make a quilt, you're buying it off a, a bolt of fabric. Yeah. And you, obviously there might be, if you're lucky, there might be some information actually on the end of the bolt, but you don't really tend to bring that away with you. Equally, sometimes the retailer will cut up that fabric into small pieces, so you never actually see the original bolt of fabric at all. I wonder if we will start to see some specialist retailers that will make a point of just trading in ecologically friendly fabrics. Absolutely. I think, again, that's down to the work that you do and your, you know, your listeners are doing in that consumer demand is going to drive that. I want to know mm -hmm. where my fabric comes from. And, you know, I go to my local store, you know, and as I say, these are mass stores. They're all over America. But there's zero, I mean, zero information as to where that fabric has come from. Yeah. In, 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 in the case that you mentioned there, in the bolt of fabric that, you know, goes into quilts, you just can't find it. And that has to happen. Let's face mm. it, you know, in this, in this whole stitch industry, we have to know what we're working with. Well, I suppose most things that we tend to buy, be they in the realm of groceries or even a bottle of wine, <laughs> tends to have ingredients on it. Yes. Um, so we're told how many calories it contains, where it's been produced, that sort of thing. Surely it, it would be a step forward to start to bring that towards fabrics, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's up to legislation. I mean, the legislation is mm -hmm. just not there. That's the problem. So in America, there's not much, um, to be honest. I mean, people talk about it. But, you know, the, the, where I see it happening is in the EU. With uh, In Italy, for instance, those manufacturers are under such pressure from the EU because they are legislating. So mm -hmm. you're going to know where, you, where your product's coming from in those, in those markets. Uh, and it will happen here in, the, in America. Um, that legislation has to happen. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure you see the same yourself, but, you know, bodies, uh, bodies like um, the United Nations and so on have put in a lot of, and, and um, you know, Greenpeace and so on have put in a lot of pressure on governments to legislate, and that can only be good. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I suppose the problem is, well, it's still possible to get cheap fabrics that haven't been um, ethically produced. Uh, that will obviously reflect in the price and, and some people will always choose to go for the cheapest option. Yeah, that's the majority of the mass market. I mean, the dye houses that I work with, there are fabrics coming in from overseas, very, very cheap fabrics in huge quantities. Um, they don't know what's on the fabric. You know, as you probably know, most woven fabrics have got what you call size on it. So yeah. you can actually weave the fabric. They don't know what size is on it. Mm. And so they have lots of dying problems because they don't even know what's on the fabric itself. That's how weak legislation is. And, you know, it shouldn't remain like that. No, I mean, I think sometimes... Um, Crafters have problems actually relating how that might affect themselves and their own crafting experience. I think most people that have quilted or that have used um, purchased fabrics for any length of time will have run across some that, um, you know, that obviously haven't been well dyed. The moment you put them into, into the wash, the colour starts to run. Yeah. 
and it can absolutely ruin a project of course if if you know you've got a red piece in the middle and suddenly it's 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 around everything else by the time it comes out of the washing machine Correct. so i think there is a an element of trying to educate or explain to crafters just why it is a good idea not just from the point of view of being ecologically sound but to know that what you're using is coming from a, um, a reliable source yeah i mean what's on the label even from a reliable source let's face it you know you often see a label that this is being done with dyes that you know are more natural or they rub off or they wash off and so on at least if you know that you're fine you know put your red 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 fabric in with a white fabric and you know therefore you end up with a pink but certainly that led again back to legislation whatever you know whatever care labels exist you know it should say what is how what your dye stuffs are going to do you know mm -hmm. if, it's, if it is going to you know wash it with set wash it separately hand wash cool wash all those instructions are so important um mm. when it when it comes to caring you know those care labels are are so important i just i just hope that more and more information is put there on those labels so we can all have fibers yarns and fabrics that we can work with with more confidence do you do you have any advice I and mean, obviously things are as they are at the moment and we very much hope that um ecological dyeing, ecologically sound dyeing will be the way forward for the future. But as things stand right now, do you have any advice for um, our students or for anybody that's thinking about um, dyeing some fabric, how they can help to reduce their uh, footprint? Yeah, I, I think it's down to education. I mean, you know, you mentioned, well, we mentioned early on, you know, the City and Guilds courses. Mm. Um, and uh, there are so many courses available online. There's so much education. And I think you're involved in that, Gail, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's where, right. Mm. Where, you know, it's good to learn. Um, mm. You know, just to go online and do a course doesn't matter, you know, how basic it is to begin with. But build your knowledge. And mm. that's going to help tremendously. So education really is important. And is there anything that they can do when they're considering which dyes to buy? Is there some that are better than others, in your opinion? Or Well, it depends. Again, it depends on the fibres that you're dyeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we, we talked about natural dyes. The One of the issues with natural dyes is what we call the tinctorial effect in the you know, some, some dyes don't have a high tinctorial effect. Whereas, you know, I talked about reactive dyes, which, you know, were invented in the 1950s and mm. are widely used just about everything that we, you know, wear these days can have reactive dyes in. They build up very, very well. So that tinctorial power is huge, which helps in processing. It helps to save water, it helps to save the dye stuff. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's no easy answer, um, again, education helps and, and and doing your homework helps um because there are so many different dye stuffs but you can look at certain groups of dye stuffs like reactives directs and so on and again that you know the way that something's dyed really should be on the labels you know mm. more and more and 
the education should be towards this is where you can get it. This is your reliable supply. So I hope that answers your question because it's a big question. Yes, uh, my apologies. It was a big question, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I think that um, students, obviously, they want to they want to be able to dye their own fabrics because you can get some fabulous effects. Having said that, um, many of them now will want to look at a natural way, you know, using leaves, um, various other, maybe onion skins, various things, but it's not a strong effect, is it? So you've got, you've got some lovely natural colors, but they're not going to um, really ping out at you and, and um, yeah it's a very different effect to the dye that you would buy which would give a very very strong color yeah it's very difficult i mean i know i'm having beetroot for dinner tonight um, <laughs> you know, when, when we peel them we, we, like we bought five pounds of beetroot yesterday when we peel them we will use those peels but mm -hmm. we can dye pink um but also um you can you can play a little bit with um with other natural products which will turn that pink into a blue or a green or whatever you know it's good to experiment but not to use chemicals not to use heavy chemicals use mm. whatever's natural um and and to me that's fabulous i enjoy that but yes you're not going to build a very strong color that way um and you don't want to waste vegetables to try and do it you know mm. um, but mm. what what you know like, like the peels are on the side and so on great use them yeah I, I do remember many years ago uh, when I was living at, at home as a child and um, my granddad got me to grow a, a you know, couple of rows of beetroots. Uh, at that stage, it was a bit of a surprise that you actually had to cook them to boil them. Yeah. And I, I remember doing the whole lot at one time and the kitchen looked as though somebody had committed a bloody <laughs> murder. <laughs> I've never seen so much pigment in my entire life. Well, yeah, yeah, I think, again, you've hit a good point there. And, you know, it, it, even when you've peeled them, you've still got to boil them. And mm. you, you can use the liquid that, you know, that you, you've boiled them in. And, and it, it is pretty strong from a beetroot. That's a really good vegetable to use. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I had the same circumstance myself. We used to grow a lot of beetroots when I was a kid. Yeah. So is there anything else, Graham, that, that, there, that you think we haven't touched upon? Um, no, I think we've, we've, as you say, we've, um, Gail, we've touched on quite a lot. Very important, back to what we said is, please, you know, be, be a voice as well. Please put pressure on for labelling, for better information, for better quality information, to understand what, what you are getting as, as somebody who's, you know, sewing or processing on an individual basis or with a, a group of friends, because... The groundswell there is really important. You see, I think this craft industry is just going to grow. I, I mean, you tell me. You know, you know more about it than I do. I just think it's going to be a, an enormous growth area in the next few years. And um, on, on the I, product, I agree. I, I do actually think that people are getting a lot more discerning as well. In some ways, you know, there's, there's, there'll always be a mass market out there, and you know, they will will have up or perhaps whatever's cheapest and maybe that's all they can afford and I am I'm not for one moment um, sort of uh, uh, commenting on that but in my experience a lot of people now are getting much more discerning about what they use uh, to do their craft work because 
if you're going to spend a lot of time on something and you're going to put a lot of work into it and you're going to have pleasure out of spending that time and doing that work, it's much nicer to work with something that is what beautiful to handle, that you know where it's come from, that it's not going to run or uh, that it's going to be printed straight, that sort of thing. Um, so there are real positives, not just ecological benefits, but real positives to the individual to use a quality product. And as you say, I think it's going to be how do we perhaps going forward persuade people to do that? Yeah, well, what a good point. Um, on Friday, I met with my colleague up in North Carolina who has a, um, he has a, a kind of brand. He's, he's the most sustainable person I've ever met. He, he has, you know, he's in the textile industry. He's been there for a, lot, a long time. He mm. deals with the growers, the cotton growers, right through to the shirt. He calls it, he, I think he actually trademarked it, Dirt to Shirt. Um, <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> it's a big thing, yeah. And I think he does 10,000 shirts a year in the Dirt to Shirt process, um, which he monitors very, very carefully. But he, he said to me on Friday, and I, and I keep forgetting this, he said, Graham, you've got to remember, we're wasting so much. And he has a garment dye house. The reason is it's the only garment dye house in the east side of America, right? Mm. In, 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 um, in Los Angeles, there are a lot of small and, and some quite large garment dyers. Here on the east coast, we don't have that much. I think there's only this one. one and, and I'm going to be fortunate, fortunate enough to, to be dying in that dye house very soon. But he said, look, look at the mass market. Somebody says, look, this pink is going to be, or this green is going to be the color in 2023. Mm. And they make as much of that color as they can. And then guess what? Oh, it changed that, you know, and, and he said to me, do you ever monitor the wastage? And I, I can't monitor it, but he said, you know, we should be thinking about the wastage that there is in apparel, and as you say, in, in, in home furnishings and so on, where goods are made and never sold. You know, that was his question. Where do they go? And he said, that is a huge problem uh, worldwide. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the point is, like, like he said, you know, I can dye, I can dye 20 garments um, in, in, in my dye vessels. And, and by the way, he uses... A lot of avocado pips. <laughs> uh, it, well, I won't mention the chain, but all the chain, all the avocados that are sold through this chain in America go to him, uh, and, and he, he boils down the pips and makes the most beautiful color uh, for his dirty shirt colors. Mm. Um, you know, so there's no wastage, zero yeah. wastage. And now we're, we're all working on this. And one project I'm working on right now with him is that we want to bring that down to even where you can order your shirt individually uh, mm -hmm. rather than have, you know, somebody who makes 5,000 and you get one of them. Um, yeah, what a great idea. Yeah, yeah. It's a great mm -hmm. idea. It's just, it's just tough to do. <laughs> That's, yeah, uh, oh, I, I can imagine it is, yeah. yes. But yeah. it, it's, a, it's a great idea. And, and as you say, there would be, in that case, zero waste. Zero waste. That's that's what we all aim for. Let's Graham, hope. it yeah. has been an absolute pleasure today having you having you here, and I've learned an awful lot about fabrics and fibres that I didn't know beforehand. So, thank you so much for that.
Well, thank you, Gail. Thanks, thanks for all your questions, and um, you know, hope we can keep in touch. Thank you.